0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn
1: more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. In the same house, and I give, gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then, on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one that says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, Because her heart yearned for her son, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, "He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him." Then the king answered and said, "Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is the mother." And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.:
0: um, Well, good morning, church. My name is Brian, I'm one of the pastors here, and what a story. Once you hear that one, you never forget it. And if you've never heard it read from the scriptures before this morning, I suspect you're at least familiar with it. It's a pretty famous one and regularly alluded to. For instance, on the Simpsons, uh, there was a bit where Homer Homer was King Solomon and Carl and Lenny both lay claim to a pie. Uh, Homer, I mean King Solomon, cuts the pie in half, eats the pie and sentences the men to death. So it veered from the biblical narrative a little bit uh, in terms of how that worked out. Or if I may step into Pastor Josh territory, there's a Seinfeld episode um, in which Kramer and Elaine get into a dispute over a girl's bicycle, and they go to Newman for adjudication. So Newman suggests that they cut the bike in half, at which point Elaine says, fine, cut the bike. While Kramer speaks up and says that he would rather it go to another than the bike be destroyed. Of course, at this point, Newman says, only the bike's true owner would rather give the bike away than see it come to harm. Kramer, the bike is yours. To which Kramer responds, sweet justice. Newman, you are wise. <laughs> it's a famous story. It's often alluded to, but maybe sometimes the familiarity kind of keeps it from us. Or maybe that's just me. But look, what I'm going to do is this more, I'm going to read the story again. We're going to just walk through it, make some observations along the way, and then we'll look at a few applications. All right. So starting again in verse 16, the two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. So we're introduced to the characters, two prostitutes and the king. Now throughout the story, they're never really referred to by names, only by their term, I guess you could say, or by their descriptor, which gives it this sort of timeless parable uh, feel. We might wonder, you know, what in the world two sex workers are doing coming before the king for him to adjudicate a disagreement between them. You know, we can't imagine a proper fancy monarch like a Queen Elizabeth getting involved in something like this. But from what I understand, the ancient Near East, maybe the most important role of a king was to do justice. That is, the king's role was, in fact, to act as a judge in the most perplexing cases. So, and here's the case, starting in verse 17. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. So first we have two women living together in the same house. I don't think it's too far-fetched for us to read between the lines uh, and gather that these two women are alone together because they're being hidden from the customers due to their condition. They're both nine months pregnant. They give birth three days apart, right? in verse 18. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. Did you catch there that three times this woman says that they were alone? She says, we were alone. There was no one else in the house with us. And only we two were in the house. You know, not only does this set up a a she said, she said situation, right? One woman's word against another. I think it's also meant to paint a picture of how bleak and painful their situation is. The two of them were in the house together, roommates, but were alone, alone together. In her novel, Death of an Expert Witness, P.D. James's detective Adam Dagliash is interviewing a woman uh, who works as a prostitute and has provided an alibi for a suspect that they're investigating. So she's described as um, a part of the book going to pubs and striking up conversations with strangers to find customers and such, so to say. So Dagliash says to her, Mrs. Meekin, what you are doing is terribly risky. And she replies, I'm afraid but at least I'm feeling something. It's better to be afraid than alone. It's better to be afraid than alone. And these women were alone. No one to help them, no one to look out for them, to provide for them, to be with them when they gave birth. Where are the fathers? Where's their boss? Where are their mothers, other family members, friends, anyone else? They find themselves hidden away alone in the same house. As many of you know, we partner with a ministry called the Aruna Project. Aruna provides empowerment through employment, providing freedom, and holistic care to victims of human trafficking in Mumbai. Many of you all have run the Aruna 5K on Labor Day or purchased bags or products from Aruna. And I emailed Cody Moorfield this week. Cody's one of our deacons and he works as the operations leader at Aruna. And I asked him if there were any stories analogous to our story from this morning. He sent me this picture. Of a woman in the brothels who had recently had a baby girl is heartbreaking. You know, women who give birth to children, uh, it's difficult enough in that situation, but especially baby girls. And this woman had a baby girl and was uh, considered nothing but sort of a, a drain or a weight. Um, I remember when our youngest was. Uh, just born, Quinn, and I was holding her and I was reading a similar story of a family that had uh, a third daughter uh, in India and their decision was to just expose the baby or what they were going to do. And I was thinking, what a heartbreaking situation. So different circumstances for this woman, but still today, right now, there are still women in the sex trade who find themselves pregnant and alone. Pregnant, apparently, because of what they do for a living and left alone, isolated when they needed support and care most. You know, I simply bring this up to help us feel the devastating situation in our guts, right? And maybe stoke our yearning for God's justice. To get a little glimpse of what these two women that we write about in our passage today were facing. And to note that Aruna and the support that you give as you support Aruna, you're standing in that gap, right? So these women gave birth by themselves. They were left alone together with their newborns. And then carrying on in verse 19, this woman's son died in the night. This woman's continuing with her testimony. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. And okay, so things get worse, right? One of the women rolls over on her newborn baby and smothers him. And imagine you wake and your most precious gift is lost And then out of grief or jealousy or rage or madness or some combination of all of the above and more, she swaps her dead baby for the other woman's live baby. We tend to read this story so fast that it's only when we slow down that we start to realize it's a horror story. Verse 21, when I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. Could you imagine this nightmare? Not only has the one woman lost her son and experienced the shock and grief and madness that would come with that, but then immediately the other woman experiences the exact same thing as she wakes up to find what she initially thinks is her baby dead as well. So now there are two mothers wild with grief. But then as she's looking at the baby, she realizes it's not her baby at all and that the other woman has switched them. And remember, they're alone. No one else in the house. No witnesses one woman's word against another, which is where we find ourselves in verse 22. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. So if you have kids or if you grew up with siblings, shoot, if you have spent time with human beings at all, this dialogue will sound really familiar, right? Often it takes the form of, yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. uh uh-huh, yeah uh you know. It's one person's word against another. He said, she said, or in this case, she said, she said. So this is the case laid out before the king. Verse 23, the king said, this one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead. And my son is the living one. So, Solomon recaps the testimony in one sentence. And we might think, why is this even in here? I mean, we literally just read what was happening, and now Solomon says the exact same thing. But I suspect it's here to show us that Solomon was listening. He was repeating back to them what he heard. There's this little exercise that counselors use. I don't know if it has a name or whatever, maybe an active listening exercise or something, but it goes like this one person talks and the other listens, like, doesn't speak at all, listening, just listens until the speaker is finished, and then the listener summarizes back to them what they heard. And then the speaker must agree that the summary is, in fact, what they were trying to communicate. And if not, then they start all over again, right? And this can happen several times before the listener really gets what the speaker is saying. If you've ever done this, it's tedious, and it can be frustrated, and it's absolutely brilliant, and Solomon is basically doing this exercise right here in verse 23, where he summarizes the case. So imagine what it would be, feel like to be these women and to be heard by the king, right? It's not resolved yet, but they've been heard. And then the shocker, verse 24, the king says, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. You know, if we can step back for a second, we know how it's going to end. But like, uh, what's he going to do with the sword? Is he going to put the women to death? One of them? both of them. You know, imagine just what the presence of the sword did to that room, right? Takes the air out of the room, makes their scalps go cold. And then the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. We know the story and we know the outcome, so we get it. But imagine if you don't know the story, right? If you heard it for the first time this morning, maybe you gasped or guffawed with like nervous laughter. Imagine being there in the room when the king says this. He has every right to do this, right? But slicing a baby in half with a sword isn't wisdom or justice. It's mad. It's cruel, or at least appears to be madness, The prospect of cutting the baby in half has its desired effect, Verse 26, then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. The mother of the living child speaks up and begs for the life of her child. Pastor and current president of Wheaton College, Phil Riken, notes that first the first mother made the kind of loving sacrifice that some women make when they put a child up for adoption. Unable to care for children very well themselves, they're willing to suffer the loss of a son or a daughter to give the child a better chance in life. Good fathers and mothers make similar sacrifices every day. Instead of doing what they want for themselves, they do what is best for their children. You know, this mother is willing to impoverish herself, sacrifice her motherhood, so to say, so that the child might live. It's not ideal. It's not that she would necessarily want, right? But as verse 26 says, her heart yearned for her son. So she was willing to do whatever it took to save his life. Now, the other woman was like, yes, slice him up. Then neither of us get him, right? If I can't have my son or I can't have him, then no one will. Solomon's seemingly aggressive and bizarre threat, exposed each woman's heart. The heart of a mother willing to do whatever it takes to save the life of her child. And the heart of a suffering mother who is overwhelmed with pain and grief and wants to see someone else suffer if she has to suffer. Then the verdict in verse 27. The king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And the result, all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him. To do justice. All right, so what? Just three things. First, God's wisdom takes people seriously, or another way to say it, wisdom humanizes. In the very first verse, we see that these women are prostitutes. After that, they're women and mothers, not prostitutes anymore, right? We might consider this story an invitation to empathy. Pastor Walter Henniger, who's teaching on this, was super helpful as I prepared this morning. He says this. He said, when these women come before the king of this deeply theocratic nation, notice what he does not say. He does not say, hey, you reap what you sow. You should have gotten into another line of work. This is all your fault. He does not say to them, your kids are illegitimate. Who cares about their worthless lives? They're never going to amount to anything anyway. He does not say, okay, now that we've solved the baby case, you're all going to jail for prostitution. The wisdom of God humanizes, takes seriously the idea of people being made in the image of God. This is where we get our modern idea of human rights and was the catalyst for the civil rights movement. Because all people are made in the image of God. Every human being, no matter what, deserves respect and care. To put it conversely, no one is deplorable or worthless or subhuman or whatever dehumanizing insult someone might want to use. This is a great reminder for any time, but maybe especially at the beginning of a presidential election year in which we will likely find ourselves disagreeing with particular candidates or, more personally, disagreeing with coworkers or friends or neighbors or each other in this church family or even our family members. God's wisdom takes people seriously, treats all people with respect, and therefore we ought to as well. You know, and if you think Solomon is something here, how about Jesus? He didn't shy away from so-called questionable, seedy people at all. He was called a friend of sinners. He had followers who were prostitutes and tax collectors and more, notorious sinners. Maybe one of the most beautiful examples of the humanizing wisdom and love of God is the famous story of Jesus and the Pharisees and the woman caught in adultery. You know, as far as we know, this woman wasn't even one of Jesus' followers. And if she was one of his followers, she hadn't quit her habit of committing adultery. Now, we don't know if she herself was a prostitute or what, but much like our story in First Kings, there are no men around, except, in this case, those who are ready to put this woman to death. The story in brief, you can find it at the beginning of John chapter 8. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. It goes like this. Religious leaders dragged a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, it says, to Jesus in order to test him. According to the law of Moses, she should have been stoned to death. But without excusing sin or nullifying the law, Jesus saves the woman by actually taking sin and the law more seriously and dropping his famous line, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. The crowd realizes that not one of them is the perfect judge in a position to cast judgment, and so they'll walk away. So this adulterer then is left alone with Jesus, and he says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. There's no condemnation in Jesus. And more than that, even there's humanity and dignity for this woman and for for all people in Jesus. We are more than our sin. We are more than our brokenness. We're more than our hurts and traumas and mistakes and wounds. Solomon saw these To prostitutes as more than their unfortunate occupations and behaviors and situation. He saw them as women and as mothers and fundamentally as human beings deserving respect and justice and mercy. Wisdom humanizes. We're invited invited to join Solomon, to join Jesus in allowing God's wisdom to humanize anyone and everyone that we encounter. So last week, Pastor Josh mentioned that what Solomon literally asks God for is a listening heart. And what God gave him, we might say, is a listening heart that listens for the heart. You know, the heart of a person, or we have that expression, the heart of the matter. That's what Solomon did here. He looked past the outward appearances, the questionable behavior, and the occupation of the women, past the she said, she said bickering, and got to the women's hearts. One that was in anguish and pain and bitter and full of vengeance and and the other that was also in anguish, but was distraught and ultimately concerned for the welfare of her child. You know, this wisdom that listens for the heart builds on the principle um, and take, that takes people seriously. And it reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from the show Ted Lasso. Now, I can't rec- necessarily recommend the series um, because there's a lot of nonsense in there. But in this one scene, Ted makes a high-stakes wager with the ex-husband of his team's owner over a game of darts in a pub. It's coming down to the last throws, and he needs to be pretty much perfect. Uh, His opponent and the whole pub assumes that he's going to lose, and he says this. He says, guys have underestimated me my entire life, and for years I never understood why. It used to really bother me, but then one day I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote from Walt Whitman painted on the wall there that said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. So I get back in my car, and I'm driving to work, and all of a sudden it hits me. All them fellows who used to belittle me, not a single one of them was curious. You know, they thought they had everything figured out, so they judged everything, and they judged everyone, and I realized that they're underestimating me, who I was had nothing to do with it, because if they were curious, they would have asked questions, you know, questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted, which I would have answered, yes, sir, every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 to 16 when he passed away. Spoiler alert, Ted then throws a double bullseye to win the game. So what's the point? Well, by the way, apparently I found out this not a Walt Whitman quote. Uh, they just made that up. <laughs> so, so, uh, so don't, apparently he never said that. I don't know where they got it, but, but what's the point? Uh, Ted, and I think Solomon here, and Jesus too, He's going to take people seriously, are genuinely curious, and distinctly not judgmental, right? We might say that this is the way that God's wisdom that listens for the heart is applied to our life. Be curious, not judgmental. Listen, not just to the words. Look beyond the surface, to the heart of a person, the heart of the matter. Like Solomon bringing the sword into the room, right? This exposed the hearts of the women. This is really hard to do. It takes patience. It means we have to get over ourselves, be less self-focused, we have to pay attention to listen. It requires the wisdom of God. You know, looking at Jesus again, the new and better Solomon, Jesus was obviously the best ever at this, demonstrating wisdom, getting to the heart when it came to people. That was kind of his deal, right? He got right to the heart. A few quick examples, and if you're not familiar with them, please go do read them and really just read the Gospels and you'll see it over and over and over again. Jesus listening for the heart. So the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, a woman who was a cultural, religious, and moral outcast. Jesus says to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman says, I don't have a husband. To which Jesus says, that's right. You have had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. Jesus got right to the heart. Or how about the story of the rich young ruler, as it's often called, Mark 10. This rich kid approaches Jesus and asks what he has to do to go to heaven, Jesus lists a bunch of commandments that any decently observant religious person would have in the bag. And the kid says, I'm doing it all, or not doing it all, as the case may be. And then Jesus gets to his heart, and he says to him, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And Mark says that he went away sorrowful, disheartened, because he had great possessions. Ostensibly, he loved his stuff so much that he couldn't bear to part with it. Jesus getting to his heart. And one more. In Luke 8 and 9, Jesus interacts with a bunch of people. But at one point, he heals a guy who then begged to travel with him. And Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. He says, go home. Then in Luke 9, he tells a couple of guys who want to go home, one for a funeral and the other to say goodbye. He says to leave and don't look back. Go home. Leave home and don't look back. Jesus listens for the heart and particularizes his call for all of these people. You can't systematize the way Jesus called people because he was listening for their hearts and spoke to where they were. Solomon got to the heart. Jesus got to the heart. But what about us, the not Solomons and not Jesuses? Right? What does it look like for us to cultivate a heart that listens for the heart? Well, a ruthlessly specific, practical way to practice this is to ask good questions, Be curious and ask good questions. Listen to what David Brooks says. He says, Asking good questions can be a weirdly vulnerable activity. You're admitting that you don't know. An insecure, self-protective world is a world with fewer questions. When you're asking a good question, you're adopting a posture of humility. You're confessing that you don't know and you want to learn. You're also honoring a person. So there's humility, there's curiosity, there's an openness to learn, a genuine care and desire to not just know the facts, but to be wise about the hearts of others. Okay, so God's wisdom humanizes, it listens for the heart, and God's wisdom is for justice for others. God's wisdom is for justice for others. Did you notice that in the last verse there in verse 28? The word about Solomon's ruling spread, and people were in awe because they saw that God's given wisdom had been given to him for doing justice. Wisdom wasn't given to Solomon so that he could become known as the wisest king ever, although that's kind of what happened. God's wisdom wasn't given to him so that he could do party tricks. It wasn't given so that he could reach his highest potential or be all that he could be or have his best life now or whatever. God's wisdom was given to Solomon for justice for others. Josh mentioned this last week. We read it in our words of assurance. In James 1, we're told, if any of you lacks wisdom, right? Would any of us fall into that category, right? Do you ever lack wisdom? we could probably paraphrase it, not if, but since, right? Since you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. What an amazing promise. We who lack wisdom are invited to ask our generous God, and he will give it to us. Ask for wisdom, and it will be given. But what is it for? And I would argue that just like the wisdom that God gave Solomon, it's for justice. And justice for others. For justice for all. And from what I understand, when the writer of 1 Kings says justice here, it's more than just like a fair ruling like Solomon took care of here. It's meant to pick the picture of God's full reality and reign. When, like we read at the, book of, at the end of Revelation, God will reign and he will be with them There'll be no more pain or tears or suffering or death. All wrongs will be made right. Sin will be no more. When we read of justice, that's what we're supposed to picture. And the wisdom of God, the wisdom that God gives us when we ask, is meant to be used to work toward that end. Or as Jesus taught us to pray, and that we'll pray here in a couple minutes, we work and pray for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. God's wisdom is a little bit like spiritual gifts in that regard. They're God-given tools, so to say, that we ask for and that are given always for others, The spiritual gifts are listed in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and are never just for you, but rather given to you to be used for others. Paul says that they're given for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. Like if you were stranded by yourself on a desert island, what spiritual gifts would you have? It's an absurd question because there would be no others to benefit from your spiritual gifts or God's wisdom for that matter. God's wisdom or spiritual gifts are never just for you or for your edification. They are for others. Right? Do we find joy and fulfillment and blessing and comfort in using God's wisdom and our spiritual gifts? Absolutely. Right? Is that the main point? No. God's wisdom is justice for others, like Solomon, ruling to find the true mother of the child, like you praying for wisdom on how to interact with your roommate or spouse or grouchy neighbor, or how to adjudicate between your children or between your parents who sometimes act like children. God promises to give us wisdom if we ask for it, and that's amazing. And that wisdom is to be used for others. So ask for wisdom, and when God gives it, use it for the benefit of others, for the kingdom. So God's wisdom humanizes. God's wisdom goes beyond the surface and listens for the heart. And God's wisdom is for others. As we prepare to come to the table, it's worth reiterating that when we're looking at King Solomon's wisdom, we're glimpsing a foreshadow of the Messiah. Look at what it says in Isaiah 11. This could describe this episode that we read about Solomon, but it's also telling us about the Davidic messianic king to come in Jesus. Isaiah writes this. He said, In the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. God's wisdom here, listening for the heart. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. God's wisdom humanizing and being for others. This is what Jesus did and does for us. The wisdom of God. God himself become human, taking on flesh to redeem Jesus cut to our hearts, loving us first, bringing justice through his sacrifice on the cross, rising from the dead so that we might live the life that is truly life. This is what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you are wise beyond what we can conceive. You are just and merciful in ways that we can only dream of and beyond what we can make sense of. You're patient and kind and generous. When we hear a story like this morning, this, we find ourselves all over the place, heartbroken by the situation of these women. Astonished at the simple but profound solution and verdict of Solomon. Curious about the whole cultural difference. Overwhelmed at feeling so unwise ourselves in so many areas of our lives. Give us grace to boldly ask you for the wisdom that you promised to give us. We confess that a lot of times we just don't ask. Maybe because we struggle to believe, help our unbelief. We confess that we too often don't listen for the heart, but rather make snap judgments based on what we see with our eyes or hear through the grapevine. Give us eyes to see people as you see them. And as we ask for wisdom, and as you grant it, we pray that you would use even us to use that wisdom for others, for our neighbors, for the most vulnerable in our society, in our homes and schools and workplaces, in our clubs and teams at parties, and in meetings. Use us and the wisdom you give us for your kingdom. And now we pray together as Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen you've been listening to a sermon from New City a church in Cincinnati, Ohio visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources that's newcity dot
1: y.org thanks for joining us today and god bless you